0: I think as we read through and listen to our text, it's good for us to remind ourselves that this was a letter written to a local church. It was written to a church who lived in the midst of the Roman Empire. And so just like any church, at any time, in any place, there were victories. There were also defeats. There were clear signs that God and his kingdom were at work among them. But there were also glaring inconsistencies and evidences just of the deep roots of the pagan culture from which they came. And we see that clearly in this. Letter Paul, he was the one who planted this church in Corinth. And you know, there's one part where he talks about, you are my boast in the gospel. They're like his crown jewel. Uh, the church that he labored for and invested so much in. We know that he probably wrote something like four or five letters to the Corinthian church. But even though Paul, this incredible follower of Jesus, apostle of Jesus Christ, even though Paul planted this church, <laughs> It seems that the Corinthians misunderstood almost everything Paul taught them. Can you imagine like what a blow that would be? (laughs) The Apostle Paul investing a year and a half into this church, multiple letters, and every time he's just like, Corinthians, like what happened? Managed to just misunderstand and twist so many of the things that Paul taught them. And not only taught them, but lived out before them. So it had been reported to Paul by the household of Chloe, who's a friend of Paul and a friend of the local church there in Corinth, that there were all sorts of issues going on in the church at Corinth. Corinth, the church in Corinth was in utter chaos, right? We're told about um, social, spiritual, and sexual problems, just to name a few. And members in this congregation were pitting against one another, pitting the congregation against Paul. And so Paul writes to them to to correct these things. And I think sometimes reading through this letter, it almost feels like a laundry list. Like Paul's just kind of going down the list, like a fix-it list. Like, okay, we're gonna just fix you and get you right. Though it might feel like that, these were symptoms of a greater disease. Disease. You see, the Corinthians had failed to understand the real life implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul is very specific. It's not that he just proclaimed Jesus, Messiah, Jesus the King, but he preached to them the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified, But the Corinthian believers had failed to realize again the real life implications of what it means that Christ the King was crucified, that he became weak, that he was poor, that he was put to death. See, the community of believers in Corinth, we're not reflecting the values, practices, and culture of the kingdom of God and its king, Jesus, but instead we're reflecting the values, mores, and habits of the culture of the day. And so Paul, you know, he wants to get deep down into the roots and he wants to root this out and again to replant, replant this truth of the good news of Jesus Christ in him crucified. Now I think about as we approach this letter we don't have the exact issues going on in our church or in our, in our culture that Corinth had but Leslie Newbegin he wisely said this, the choice for the church in every age will always be will our identity be shaped by scripture or by our culture by the biblical story or the cultural story. That's the question. What is shaping us? What is forming us? In whose image are we being made? So to the Corinthian's factions, to their power plays, to their political positioning, Paul's response is to replace the Corinthian obsession with pagan style worship and power with a theology of the cross. And he's going to expose human pretensions to greatness and knowledge as foolishness. Now, instead of going verse by verse through our passage, which we've been doing for the past weeks, we're gonna just instead talk through two things. We're gonna consider the use and abuse of wisdom and power that we see in the world and in the church. And then we're gonna talk about God's wisdom and power through the cross and what God calls us to. So let's do that, right? The use and abuse of wisdom and power. So Paul, he's looking at what is going on in the Corinthian church and he sees all of the discord and the pride. This is just a natural result of where human wisdom and power always lead to to pride, to division and oppression. And this is radically different from the wisdom and power of Jesus Christ that he proclaimed and portrayed, he says, before them, See, when Paul preached the good news to, to, of Jesus to the Corinthians, it was not another philosophical idea to pontificate. It wasn't a different way to get power and dominance over one another. It was actually a radical rebuke to human selfish ambition and human pride. I think Paul is really looking at the Corinthians and saying, you are after the wrong thing. Or, I love this one, this idea. You don't understand what power and wisdom are for. Let's just stop for a second this morning and think about that. What is power for? What are we supposed to do with power? Why has God given this tool to humanity? What is wisdom for? What are we supposed to do with it? Why does God give it to us? Human power and human wisdom end up doing what all good things do when we treat them as ends in themselves. They end up turning in on themselves. They become selfish, twisted, and distorted. And as humans use power, we more often than not abuse that power, using it to afflict and oppress others. You might remember that Lord Acton famously said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And if we're honest, history is just one tale one story after another of the abuses of power but the same is true with wisdom how often we've used wisdom to throw shade on others we use it to tear down and destroy our opponents even in things like apologetics a defense of the faith and all we've done is made a mockery of the opponent We divide the world into the wise and the fools rather than using wisdom to help, to heal, to bring peace and unity, and show by our own lives the good life. This is what wisdom looks like, to incarnate that wisdom. And I believe that by and large, there aren't many differences between the church and the world when it comes to the use of power and wisdom. Because as much as Christians say we love Jesus, that we love and obey scripture, our everyday values, our everyday habits, our goals for our own lives, often reflect that of a world that does not know the way of Jesus, does not know Life in the power of the Holy Spirit and the hope of the new creation. I mean, just think about what we've seen in recent and past history, not just by Christians, but in the church and Christian leadership. We've just been reading recently in the paper of somebody that many of us looked up to for many years, Ravi Zacharias. And as we read, we are shocked and appalled that someone who we thought to be a man of God could do such things to so many women. What? Where does this come from? It's because we copy the world when it comes to power. This is not just sexual abuse. This is an abuse of power. And this has gone on in large churches in our country, churches that claim to be gospel churches, Jesus churches, discipleship-oriented churches, and we see these as abuses of power. preying upon women who came to them for help, Pastors using their influence to build up their wealth or status, using power for themselves in their inner circle. Church, the world is looking for a theology of power. You think about what has gone on in the Me Too movement and how this has gone almost systematically throughout society critiquing the power structures that be and the abuses that have come from these power structures. We're looking for a theology of power. Can someone show us power that is used for good? We have it. It's a theology of the cross. We have it, but more often than not, the church and its leaders are failing to give it to the world. This should not be. But see, this is exactly what was going on in Corinth. We are not so different from our brothers and sisters living 2,000 years ago. Paul, he points to Jesus' cross in contrast to the Corinthians' misuse of power and wisdom. He's saying, this is what real power and wisdom looks like. Though it may look like weakness and foolishness in the eyes of the world... Jesus is laying aside his power for the sake of the salvation of the world and Paul is pointing to the cross and calling the Corinthians and us to the way of the cross, to a cruciform life as a whole lifestyle in stark contrast to the culture of Corinth. Because it's not enough to talk about the cross It can, like all things, turn into a philosophy that we pontificate but never practice ourselves. The cross of Christ must be put on display through God's people. Remember what Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, would be my disciple, Let him deny himself, take up his or her cross, and follow me. Jesus calls each one of us as his followers to the cruciform way of life. He calls us to put the self-sacrificial, other-focused life on display. And as I said, the Corinthians had failed to see the real life implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul calls them to this overall way of life. He calls them to die to themselves in the most seemingly insignificant ways. Remember later, he'll talk about lawsuits that are going on. And he says something that we think is crazy. Crazy. Why do you not rather suffer wrong? Like, what? Absolutely not, Paul. I'm right. They're in the wrong. But see, again, this is Paul's theology of the cross to win by losing to show strength through humility and meekness. And I think so often living in this country of our individual rights, we often find this call to be Jesus' disciples in the cruciform way and the individual rights of us as American citizens bumping up against one another. But again, the question is, will we be shaped by culture or will we be shaped by scripture? It's only as we live this out in the everyday annoyances and challenges of life, real life, everyday discipleship, only then will we actually be clued into the way God's wisdom and power works, the way true wisdom and power really work. I think about this in my own marriage. I remember when I got married, I made a vow of love to my wife, Grace. And really what I was declaring there in that moment, you know, for better, for worse, rich or poor, sickness and in health, yada, 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 until death do us part. For me in that moment, what I was really declaring was how I felt about Grace in that moment. You know, making a declaration like, babe, I'd die for you. But man, how hard it has been to live for my wife. Right, That's the real stuff. To choose her over myself, that's a struggle, but that's where the rubber meets the road. That's when husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's not just that you take a bullet for your babe. It's that every single day you put her before yourself. That's what we're talking about. And yet how we can make it this like ethereal out there, oh yeah, Jesus and him crucified. Oh no, that is the blood and guts of everyday stuff. That's what we're talking about. And this is what Paul calls us to. This is what Paul is calling the Corinthian church to. And see, this is the way God's wisdom and power actually works. So I think I need to just qualify something. I don't want to be misunderstood Paul was not down on power and wisdom. And I think sometimes the way that we preach First Corinthians or maybe even already you're thinking like, okay, yeah, you know, power bad, weakness good. You know, wisdom bad, foolishness good. It's like, that's not what we're actually talking about here. Paul goes at lengths to show the way humans often misuse these gifts from God. And in my observation, I think Christians often make two missteps. When it comes to power, we either wield power the same way the world does, or we refuse it in false humility. We reject it. I think about those who maybe came out of the world and came out of, like, you know, just a strong power structure, intimidation, manipulation, but they led these huge businesses, corporations, or, you know, we're doing things. Significant things, strong leaders, and yet they come into the church, receive the gospel, and then almost just plateau. Rather, you think about like Paul the apostle and what God did with him. He talks about how he was a radical zealot for the way of the Pharisees, for the way of Phineas all these things, and yet he meets Jesus the Messiah on the road, and he's radically changed, but he goes just as hard now for Jesus as he, even harder than he ever went. Now he does this for Jesus the Messiah because he actually sees a bigger vision, a bigger kingdom than the one that he was serving, than the one that he was building, and so I hope even this morning, as we talk about true wisdom and true power, that if God has given that to you, given you that opportunity, that you will not reject it, but that you will use it in the way that it was meant to be used. What God wants for us who are in Christ is to learn by Jesus' example to use the gifts that God has given to humanity. Properly. So, how do disciples of Jesus properly use wisdom and power? If you have a Bible, Mark chapter 10. Look at this in just a minute. So, in Mark's gospel, we have this incredible story. Remember the brothers James and John, disciples of Jesus. They were seeking authority, power, and greatness from Jesus. They've been following Jesus for, you know, probably two, almost three years at this time. They've seen the miracles that Jesus has done to him, you know, show his power and his goodness. They knew that Jesus was Messiah. And so just like any Jew at that time, they're expecting Jesus Eventually, to roll into Jerusalem to set up his kingdom in opposition to the Roman kingdom, to throw down the Jewish tyrannical system and all these things, and to set himself up as king. And so they ask, Jesus, when you enter your glory, can we sit on your right and left hand? And so Jesus asks him a series of questions, you know, and then finally he says, Actually, sorry, it's already been reserved. You think, well, who's it been reserved for? What's he talking about? So here's the irony of Mark's gospel. As you get to the end, you realize that the moment that Jesus is exalted, that he's glorified, the moment when Jesus comes into his kingdom is actually on the cross. And guess what? There are two individuals who are on his right and on his left. He says, you don't know, James, You don't know, John, what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized? See, Jesus's glory looks radically different from the way that we think of glory. I think of that amazing passage in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, where Isaiah writes, who would have believed that this was the mighty arm of the Lord? You think about that it was the mighty hand of God that brought Israel out of Egypt, that crushed Israel. Pharaoh, that brought them safely through the waters that crushed their enemies. And yet, Isaiah, as he foresees the suffering servant, how could this be the mighty hand of God? And yet, this is the moment of all moments when Jesus will be exalted to show what real power, what real wisdom does. It is outward facing, servant oriented, sacrificial. That's what real power and real wisdom looks like. And this, ladies and gentlemen, yes, this is the mighty hand of God. And so that when God gives power and authority to his people, he expects it to look like Jesus, others oriented. I love what N.T. Wright says in his commentary Mark. He says, the cross is where the glory shall be revealed because it is there that God turns worldly power and authority on its head. The cross is God's way of putting the world and ourselves to rights. It challenges and it subverts all the human systems which claim to put the world to right, but in fact only succeed in bringing about suffering, death, and a different set of humans on top. How many times have we seen that? Meet the new boss. Same as the old boss. We won't get fooled again, right? Think you're Roger Daltrey. Anybody? The who? No? Somebody. But I mean, we've seen this again and again and again. And there at the cross, God turns it all on its head. The cross calls into question all Human pride and glory, and it carries radical, dangerous political meaning. This is what true wisdom and power looks like. Now, as the story goes on in Mark, I think just a few other things I want to highlight about this: Jesus brings the disciples together. And he speaks once again about what greatness and leadership looks like. Listen to this: Mark 10:42 through 45, if you have your Bible. He says, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. This is not the way. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even comparison, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think what's so important to note in Jesus teaching his disciples is that he affirms the one who wants to become great and wants to be first in the kingdom of God. See, it's clear, if you read through scripture, it's clear that God is not down on ambition, I think sometimes we get this idea where even reading through 1 Corinthians chapter one, I've heard it preached, like God is just trying to put humanity in their place. Like, yeah, that's right. Big God in your place. Like it's this weird like intimidation thing. This is not what's happening here. God is not down on ambition or desire. Like we shouldn't want power. We shouldn't want greatness or honor, that these are bad things to desire, so we need to get rid of the desire. That's actually what's taught in Buddhism. But these, according to the Bible, are not inherently evil. Remember Adam and Eve, the first humans, they were created to rule, to have authority over the creation. They were created for greatness. The problem is, as I said before, that power, greatness, and ambition have been twisted through human selfishness and sinfulness. So what Jesus desires is to correct ambition and put it in its proper context. As I said, I think through redemption in Christ, through coming through and and receiving the broken body, the shed blood of the king of the universe for our sake. We're being washed and cleansed of all of those ideas of what real power, of what real wisdom looks like. And we come out the other side. But like I was saying about Paul, there's this huge playing field. God wants us to rule and reign. He wants us to cultivate and subdue the earth but to do it in a way that brings justice, that brings equity, that brings goodness, that brings protection. That's what God wants us to do with our power. And so Jesus redefines for his disciples, for us, what is honorable, what is worthy of praise? What is honorable? What is true greatness and power in God's kingdom? And Jesus answers for us. If you would be great, wonderful, let's do it. Be the servant of all. That is what true greatness and power in God's kingdom looks like as portrayed by the king himself, the king of glory. It's an others-oriented life. And Jesus constantly showed this, not just in his death, but in his life and ministry. And I, the one that always stands out to me is just so powerful is the John 13 passage where Jesus takes the at-your-service posture and washes the feet of his disciples. You know, years ago, I was teaching through the Gospel of John at our church on Sunday mornings. And I was trying to understand, like, contextually, like, You know, what was Jesus really doing, and what did it look like in a Greco Roman culture and a Jewish culture? And here's what's going on there. This culture considered foot washing below even the lowest service, no one washed another person's feet in that culture. And yet, we see Jesus doing and going lower than any human was even meant to go in a caste system. He goes lower than all of that and washes the feet of his disciples and then turns around and says, you you see what I have done? Do this for one another. Love one another as I have loved you. Serve one another, be at your service. But Jesus also elaborates on this in the Sermon on the Mount. So he tells us, he says, the real life, the flourishing life, the great life, the good life, a life of wisdom is a life of meekness, a life of humility, practicing mercy, practicing suffering, suffering injustice, and at the same time practicing righteousness and justice, peacemaking and pureness of heart. These are the characteristics that mark Jesus' people, the cruciform way, the upside-down kingdom of God. The posture of power, the posture of authority, the posture of wisdom and leadership in God's kingdom is to be servant of all. It's to take all of that authority, all of that power, all of that greatness, and use it to serve. Use it for the benefit of of others humanity the way that we think about power more often than not the great ones like Jesus says are those who are served by everyone else it's the way it works in all human cultures it's the way it worked in the Greco-Roman culture the one at the top is supported by everyone else but Jesus' kingdom diagram is the upside down triangle it's our new Christian symbol right The upside down triangle is the way of the kingdom of God. It's completely backwards and upside down. Jesus finishes this teaching for his disciples with. Just an incredible statement. I think sometimes it's lost on us, but he says this. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In Jewish theology, the Son of Man... He's greater than David. He's greater than Solomon. He's the greatest king ever in their history. And it, it's not just these, like, he's the capstone. Like, this is it. This is when God's kingdom reign comes, right? So, he's Jewish theology's ultimate ruler. He's the long awaited king, the one to whom Yahweh is going to grant the kingdom. The power and the glory. He's the one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And yet, listen to what Jesus says this great one will exhibit his greatness not by being served, but by serving and giving his life as a ransom for many. This is how the true king, the king of kings, This is how he shows his greatness, by service. And this, this is the piece, you guys, that should strike us to the core of our being. If this is what the king, the son of God, the creator to whom all power and glory belongs, if this is how he uses his power, then what about me? How am I to use my power? How am I to use my wisdom and learning? How am I to use my influence? Well, I'm to use it in that same way. To be a servant. To be one who gives themselves sacrificially for the life of the world, even as he did. And that is any and all, regardless of societal honor. Regardless of worth, the worldly and the worthless. Regardless of class, regardless of ethnicity or color or sex or politic, you get the idea. Irregardless of any of these things, our posture as the people of God is one of service. That is what true greatness looks like. And it is radically different from the way our world has done it and still does. And as I said, the world is looking for, they're looking for an answer. Someone show us the way. We know we need leadership. We know we need power. We know we need authority. We know we need wisdom, but it keeps biting us. And so here comes the king. Here comes the creator to set the world right. And he shows us there in the cross how it is truly done. He shows us through his life how it is truly done. And now for those who are in Christ, he calls us to his own way, Jesus' way of power and authority. And it's not about how much power we can wield now, but how much we can serve. It's not about how high we can go, but how high we can lift others and especially those who have no honor and power in our society. What an incredible and tangible way that God invites us into his kingdom work. We think about evangelism. For me, I know with the people that I interact with people that I bump into, the conversations that I have, what gets through is a questionable life. Not necessarily, and I'm not saying that God does not use these things, but not necessarily unapologetic in the way that we normally think about it. Or the Romans road as we often have used to share the gospel with people. But what tends to open the door is this at-your-service posture of Jesus. When people see that, they draw in. And here's the radical thing. Remember, church, when Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. There's something so beautiful, so good, so true about this lifting up of Jesus to see what real power, real wisdom looks like. And I believe that the world is longing for this. And so we have this opportunity to live out the gospel, to see men and women drawn in to know the true king, to know the true power, to know the true wisdom from God. How is God calling us to do this? Everyday opportunities as we put the cruciform life of Jesus on display in our places of work that we manage for the benefit of others, not for how much money we can make and how big a vacation we can go on, how nice of a car we can drive, not thinking about ourselves and our own benefit, how it benefits and protects us, but how much we can benefit others. That is the way of Jesus by being a father or mother who lives to lift their children up, to see them succeed, to see them grow into all that God has called them to be, to use our power and authority in their life to cultivate their lives. And we can think of a hundred other examples of how God is calling us to do this in everyday circumstances, Those are the real life implications of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this is what Paul had expected to see at work in the life of the congregation at Corinth. But instead, what did he find? A church in chaos, bitterness, and at war amongst himself. May it not be so with us. Let the message of Christ crucified for you, Christ in weakness for me, let that compel us to put the life of Jesus on display. Let the message of the cross do what it's meant to do, challenge us and the rest of the world to rethink and recalibrate our lives according to the true power and wisdom of the cruciform way of Jesus. Lord, be it unto us. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come we ask that you would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, which is to make this word alive and effective in our lives, to reform us in the image of Jesus so that we may become by your wisdom and power, by your life in us, what you created us to be And then that through us, the world might know and experience your true power and wisdom. Your true power and wisdom at work in our work, at work in our leisure and play, at work in our homes, in our relationship, at work in our neighborhoods and in our cities. Lord, do what you said in John. Be lifted up so that all will draw to you. Lord, as we continue to see the fallout from our culture, may we be able to point to you true wisdom and power from God righteousness, sanctification, wisdom, power found in you. Be it unto us, Lord.